Thanks for joining the second episode, the second part of the conversation that Mikhail and I started relating to information contained within the documentary uh, from YouTube, The Obesity Conspiracy. As uh, was indicated in the first part of the discussion, if you feel like you're suffering from any of the issues that we are bringing up, please make sure you reach out to your personal care provider, your primary care physician, to go over options that you might have for treatment. If you feel like you might be suffering from any type of eating disorder or problems pertaining to body image issues and are afraid to go and talk to your primary care provider, I have provided links within the description of this episode for you, just as I've done with all the other episodes pertaining to any of the eating issues that we have. So we're going to pick up the conversation where we left off, looking at some of the issues contained within the documentary from YouTube, The Obesity Conspiracy, starting with some of the questions that uh, Michaela had pertaining to some of the books that we might find. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and let's get started. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. Yeah, so the the Barnes and Nobles before we get back to the to the finer points of the discussion on the obesity conspiracy. Uh when we start talking like we start looking at like what's what's out there a lot of what's presented sounds cultish, particularly if you if, yeah. you, if you read if you read through the books. It's not really cultish. It's not really cult in terms of. I, I know there's a couple of books out there that have cult in the title as it relates to diet and exercise. Mm-hmm. It's not really cult. It's more culture, and so okay. a lot of what's being sold, and it's actually really it, if you think about their their marketing. And so what's what's being sold is culture, not necessarily cult. Right. And so uh, it, it's actually one of the, the kind of the, the, the finer points between the between the two ideas. When we start talking about cult, we're talking about dogma and dogmatic practice. When we're talking about culture, we're talking about a, a social understanding. And so when you start going through a lot of a lot of those books. Or if you start looking at a lot of what's on that's available in terms of publication, mass media, multimedia, internet media, there's a lot of, of diet culture. There's a lot of exercise culture that some people might view as being cult, mm-hmm. but really is more culture. They're they're kind of how do we socially interact with our food? How do we socially interact using exercise? Those factors. Right. As opposed to you follow this or you are no longer part of my my exclusive club, my exclusive club. Yeah. And, and so that's what's that's what's really being marketed when you start going through 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 those those avenues. And there are some there there's some good books out there. There's some not so good books out there. I know you're trying to get me to say read my book, but that's not that's not me. That's not kind of how I uh, want to project this as uh, me marketing myself out there so for people to go and buy stuff from me especially with the intent of that book kind of being more the underlying science of what's going on as opposed to the 
here's this one thing you can do in order to be fit because that's not how it works. Even if that's how people want uh, their information given to them. I think people, a lot of the time, they want kind of an easily digestible, flashy, um, really not, what's the word for uh, like uh, promising? They want someone to tell them like, you're going to get all these great things. You're going to lose all this weight. You're going to have amazing hair. You're going to have amazing nails. You're going to have amazing skin. You're going to de-age yourself by 20 years or whatever. I've heard that before, but yeah, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a highly disciplined thing to want to sit down and read a book, especially when you take into account the, the psychological part of it, where it's someone who's already struggling with probably body image to a degree and things like that, maybe health issues brought on by over fatness, things like that. So it's, it's a loaded thing. And I've mm-hmm. tried to, you know, tell people like, Hey, I'll read it with you. Or I'll ask, I'll ask questions to the author directly. I don't know what else I could offer. That would be, you know, kind of like a, a positive incentive, but I don't know. And, and once again, that, 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 that goes into the, in, into what the, what the pitch of the books you, that you were pointing at that you happen to see within the, the culture aspect of, of this Yes, is it, it's, more and it's more of a clickbait yes idea than it is okay how do i how can i actually become healthier exactly how can i understand the science in order to understand the science you actually have to use the big fancy words you actually have to dig into what are the hormones what are what is the metabolism yes it's not okay what do the what do the what does the research actually say exactly and so you get a lot of these well research shows yeah well what research (laughs) what was was good with the research what's bad with the research and so when you start looking at a lot of and that's what i tried to do so with the two with the two editions of of that book Mm -hmm. they're both very similar but slightly different in terms of what's in the book and what has been added to the book and what's been subtracted from the book and the focus of the books. Yes. The first edition was, was strictly geared towards the medical professional with here are 50 questions that I solicited to write to. Oh, okay. And so, so the, the, the questions in the, in that book, like, Oh, I've heard this is good. Is that correct? Yes. That, once again, that's geared towards the medical profession because the medical profession is going to get asked the same question. Yes. And so what, is, what it's doing is it's basically giving the reader a chance to kind of understand, okay, here is what is behind the recommendation. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's what's lacking a lot of the nuances that comes into play is, is, what is what's the actual reason for doing this? And that goes into the into the psychology of all of the 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 behavioral aspects, because once again it goes into the cogs, mm-hmm. and we can't change our genes. No, we can't change our age. No, we can't we can't change our our. And once again it goes in, it goes into the genes. We can't change the hormonal aspects that come out because of the twenty third chromosome, the XY chromosome. Yes. That's going to dictate distinct hormonal influences. Yes. 
That's why everybody talks about gender in terms of social identification. Mm-hmm. Even if I was, to, even if someone was to transition to yes. to to change their morphological appearance, yes, to fit what their their genetics happen to be, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, X Y genetics, there yes. is still hormonal influences that come into play that oh, will yeah. influence overall metabolism and will influence overall health based off of that change in metabolism. Okay. And so I can't do anything about those factors. No. I can change diet. I can change exercise. I can change lifestyle, which is going to have an impact on hormonal influences by changing stress responses, by changing growth signals, by changing ischemic signals, by changing all of these other stresses. I can have an influence, but there's factors that are outside of my control that I cannot change. Right, exactly. And because I cannot change it, we have to include that in every conversation that we have because it, it becomes grounded within the physiology. Yes. And it's that physiology that's going to dictate what my responses happen to be to everything that I do, including, my, including psychology, the neurophysiology, yes. the neurobiology what happens within the neurons is going to dictate what I do cognitively. Oh, do you mean on like a, um, just a purely like neurotransmitter firing level or? Yes. To, yeah. Okay. To the way in which the neurotransmitters are being sent, the way in which the, the neurons are sending signals. Right. Is going to dictate how I cognitively function. Yes. Even if I want, even if retroactively. So the neurons are going to fire before I cognitively am aware that the neurons are firing. Exactly. And all of that is set up by my biology. And that is mm-hmm. all set up based off of the physiology and the responses that, the, that everything's had over my, life, over my lifetime. All of the stresses, all of the non-stresses, everything is going to dictate all of those cognitive psychological responses that I'm going to have to whatever I'm doing. Right. Which goes into, and is something that was, that I was kind of, taken aback from when I watched the the obesity conspiracy mm-hmm. thing is the amount of shaming that was placed throughout the throughout the video. Would you say that they were a bit uh backhanded? Because there were times where I've noticed they were trying to almost absolve people who struggle with overfatness from responsibility, but at the same time, it was also not fully understanding there was kind of a fine line there and i could see how it could they could hide behind kind of the oh we're being we're being nice you know we're saying it's not fully your fault we've made this video to talk about what you're doing wrong but i don't know maybe it was almost kind of more of a conniving thing even though that is a pretty strong accusation it it, it, i wouldn't use the word conniving okay it it was it was more they were putting that part into their story so mm-hmm. as to absolve the other parts of the story. Okay. Because there was a, there was a lot of and it, uh, there was a lot of fat shaming. Yeah. That took place, and it's not in. And the reason why there's fat shaming is mainly due to biases by the medical and health professionals that they were that were involved with the with the the takes that they used in their video. I'm not. Oh. I don't really. It, it's it's it, it falls along the lines of a documentary 
type yes. video, but it's not really documentary. It's not, it's trying to tell a one-sided one angled story as opposed to yeah, a, it, a, a total story, a total understanding. Yeah. The way in which health professionals view patients mm-hmm. is going to dictate how health professionals treat the patient. Yes. And for the longest time, including today, a majority of health professionals view individuals who are obese over fat as choosing to be obese over fat due to some aversion, some uh, lack of psychological or cognitive desire to not be even though everybody in society is telling them, oh, you are not good enough because you are obese or overfat or however you want to want to look at the, the issue. Mm-hmm. And that not good enough has wormed its way into the way in which health professionals have approached treating people who are overfat, over, overweight, or obese, however you want to, however you want to label it. Mm-hmm. I label it as, as, as overfat is because it's within the fit fat continuum that, that I've discussed ad nauseum about. Mm-hmm. The issue is not the body weight. The issue is the fat mass relative to the fat pre-mass and what that fat mass does hormonally and physiologically to the body. Yes. But the problem is, is that the healthcare professional doesn't get past what the body looks like. In a lot of times, if you are a female who is, who is overweight, who was complaining or overfat, who's complaining about something, the first thing they're going to do is, oh, go lose weight and then come back. That's a popular thing I've seen on all the body positivity videos is a lot of the uh, main points that are brought up are a fear of going to the doctor. That's a huge one. And, you know, I know it's, anecdotal evidence but i could totally see how going to the doctor and you you bring up something and you look a certain way they're like well just lose your weight or i don't know if they treat anorexics and bulimics the same way there could be a double standard i'm not sure general i, I g- can't g- imagine in, in, in a generalized statement yeah they treat them quite differently okay so they don't just say like oh i Come back to me when you've gained some weight. No, because they they they, oh. they they see they see both as having health issues. Okay. Yes. But they treat the overfatness issue as all you got to do is change your diet a little bit and change your activity a little bit. Yes. To quote the former first lady Michelle Obama, oh. all you got to do is do thirty minutes a day. How hard can that be? All you got to do is eat healthy. Or eat healthier. How hard can that be? Define healthy. Define healthy. Define healthier. Yes. Once again, food is food. Yes. You fast food is no is no less healthy than organic food. See, I've heard that a lot too. Is I've heard I've heard a lot of of talk from medical professionals, especially that. It's all about, first of all, it's all about calories, which no, but it's all about the calories and it's all about, for some reason with this logic, I can eat the amount of calories I'm supposed to eat per day. I don't need to cut down on them, but 
I need to instead get all those calories from a salad instead of a Big Mac. And I don't understand what the reasoning is there. I guess it's the, the vitamins and minerals aspect, but I, I don't get where the calorie argument comes in then. I don't understand. Yeah. It's, so it's like half baked. It, 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 it is. And part of it comes from a very poor application of some very poor studies. <laughs> I could definitely see that. And once again, it goes into, okay, so research says, okay, well, what research? Yes. And this goes into something that was hinted at, but wasn't actually addressed within the video. Mm-hmm. The whole idea about fat in the diet being bad mm-hmm. and sugar in the diet being being bad. Yes, carbs. But, Carb- but that was an interesting thing is, is they said that carbs and proteins both spike blood sugar, and that's always bad. So what what is that? Are proteins bad, but then an advertised animal product, which is, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm the, I don't know. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. It is. And th- there is some evidence to, to show that you do get glucose spikes following a high protein meal. Okay. There is some evidence to show that you get glucose spikes following a high carb meal. Mm-hmm. But it goes into the what's a good carb, what's a bad carb, what's a good protein, what's a bad protein. And yes. there's no such thing as good carbs and bad carbs. There's no such thing as good proteins and bad proteins. Mm-hmm. When we do look at carbohydrate in the diet, the good carbohydrates are typically going to be linked with things that have higher brand content to it, higher cellulose content to it, fiber mm-hmm. content to it. Whereas bad carbs are going to be carbs that are that have higher glycogen or higher uh, starch okay. content to them relative to brand fiber content. And so when you hear good carb, bad carb, that's what they're talking about. Okay. They're talking about, and, and what that has to deal with is how much of that carbohydrate is going to be digested and absorbed within the intestines. Mm-hmm. How much of the how much of that carb is going to be used by the microbiome and passed along? Within that idea, if I'm eating animal protein, steak, pork, chicken, or beef, pork, pork, chicken, fish, yeah, the the traditional types of things that we think about in terms of of animal protein sources, the muscle itself is going to have some glycogen within it because that's where that's 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 where two hundred for humans, mm-hmm. that's where we're about 200 grams of glycogen is stored. The remaining part is stored within the liver. Oh, yeah. And the amount of glycogen stored within the muscle is going to be dependent upon a whole bunch of uh, physiological signals based off of training status and how I use my body in terms of activity. But that glycogen is going to get digested, freed up from the animal protein source, mm-hmm. and absorbed. And it's going to be absorbed just like all other sugars are absorbed, excluding fiber cellulose right and that's because the bonding that we see with cellulose we don't have the enzymes to break apart yes and so it's, it's held by a, by a, by a beta bond which we don't mm-hmm. have the amylase enzyme to break apart whereas all the starches are held together by alpha bonds which we have the amylase to break apart mm-hmm. and so we don't digest the cellulose for absorption whereas we digest the starches and the glycogen 
And so if I have a, a huge state, any of the glycogen that happens to be within that state is going to get broken down and absorbed. Okay. It might be 50, 60 grams of protein or 50, 60 grams of protein, 10, 15 grams of fat, 10, 15 grams of uh, carbohydrates within that steak. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are going to cause changes within the macro molecules in circulation within my blood. Right. Which can trigger a spike in glucose. Right. I don't see the same spike if I if I have the same equivalent amount of fat. And this is because the the molecules within fat have no glucose in. It. Right. And it has no metabolites outside of glycerol mm -hmm. in a triglyceride that mm -hmm. can become glucose in the liver. Right. And so I'm not going to see that that spike in in glucose coming from a from a high fat meat. Oh. But if we go back and start looking, okay, what was mentioned within the video and what a lot of people talk about in terms of like good diet, bad diet, healthy diet, unhealthy diet. Yeah. A lot of the idea about healthy diets and, oh, don't eat fast food. Fast food is bad. Yeah. Bad. It comes down to how much fat am I having in my diet? Yeah. Relative to other nutrients. Mm, okay. And within the, the foods, Am I getting exposed to chemicals that might have some sort of metabolic disruptive property or endocrine disrupting property? Mm -hmm. So do anti-nutrients, are those a thing? Because his, uh, well, I don't know who wrote the video. I'm assuming it's multiple people. Um, they were talking about how uh, it's beans, nuts, seeds, uh, cruciferous vegetables, and bran apparently block your nutrient absorption and they're anti-nutrients. So is that a, is that a decent guide? Uh, I've outside of that, I've never heard of an anti-nutrient. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And, he was saying anti-nutrients block absorption of other nutrients that you're eating. And so there are chemicals that are going to attempt to come in through through similar transporters within the intestines mm -hmm. that due to what's referred to as competitive inhibition can minimize the absorption, but to be chemically speaking, to be anti something. Yes. Is to, is to somehow be the opposite. Yes. To what it is or to somehow hamper the ability for that nutrient to do what it's supposed to do. Right. To somehow disrupt the properties of that nutrient. Apparently, and the, the thing is phytic acid. That's the that's the culprit here with these anti nutrients. Phytic acid, and I think it was one more thing, but uh, phytic acid was the big one. It was okay. the big problem. It, I don't even know what that is. So maybe you can explain it for me and for everyone else listening, because I have no clue. Never heard of that before. So phytic acid is a uh, phosphorus-based acid. It's an acid that has phosphates within it. And uh, it has an impact on cation availability, the bioavailability of cations, positive charge ions within the body. It's been associated with uh, formation of uh, kidney stones based off the accumulation of phosphates in the urine that's being filtered and formed within the kidneys. 
there is some indication that it has an impact on the bioavailability of some of the nutrients that might be available, uh, including regulation of glucose and uh, lipid availability within the body. But it's not an anti-nutrient, and to indicate as such is kind of a, a misnomer, misconception about what uh, the, the phytic acid happens to be. And based off of what was being presented, I would not spend too much time uh, discussing it, even though uh, if you overconsume some of the substances that have high amounts of phytic acid, you do have to worry about uh, stones, uh, kidney stones in particular, if you are not being properly hydrated uh, along with eating high amounts of phytic acid. Is it even significant? As no. significant as they're claiming? No. Okay. So it's just, it's just there. Yeah. And so it's hanging out. Okay. So it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna if, block if, the if that, if that, absorption. It's not it, gonna, far, once again, is off the top of my head, as far as I know, no. If that okay. changes, I will make it addendum to what we're recording right now and correct the, 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 the legend here in okay. terms of what, what we're, what we're saying, correct, correct what we're putting out there. Okay. Particularly with all of the foods that they labeled to avoid. Because if you hmm. if you look at that list of foods again, go ahead. So it's beans, uh, nuts, seeds, cruciferous vegetables, and bran. And so bran. all of those all those foods. Yeah. You would have to eliminate about 90% of what's being eaten. Oh yeah. From from the diet. That and apparently there is this thing. That's presented uh, brown rice versus white rice. Mm-hmm. And now the reasoning here I thought was pretty funny, just personally, because he said, you know, look at ancient civilizations. Why did they only eat white rice and not brown rice? Because the brown rice apparently has the phytic acid. And um, I guess the difference guess between the difference between white white and brown rice is a bleaching effect. Yeah. That occurs by stripping the 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 brand, the covering of the rice seed off the rice. Yes. The difference, so, so the nutrient difference between white and brown mm-hmm. is about fiber, not about anything else. Okay. But within the covering, you get other nutrients that you don't get from the white rice, which is why if you look at a lot of uh, white processed Flowers, mm-hmm. white rice, there's enrichment that takes place. Yes. And what the enrichment is doing is it's putting back in things that were stripped during the whitening process. Right. It's not adding things that would metabolically cause issues. Okay. But what it's doing is it's making sure that you get nutrients that, if you don't have them, mm-hmm. will cause metabolic disruptive issues. Okay. This is where uh, they'll put back in a lot of the B vitamins. Okay. And so B vitamins have huge metabolic importance. So niacin, folic acid. Yes. Right. Good. The the author saying this goes perfectly into part of the video. I had to say it. He said that American white flour is awful and you should never eat it. So is that completely wrong? Um, I wouldn't say never eat it. Okay. And this is, and once again, so I have a slight bias on this. Okay. Because I don't eat starch. 
Oh, okay. I, I, I have very, I have very little starch in my diet. Okay. And so for me to tell you, oh, don't eat it or, to, or do eat it is once again, you have to understand that I'm coming from, from a slightly biased perspective. Okay. There's a lot of, if you look at the milled flours. Yes. And the products that get produced by the milled flours. Mm-hmm. If you buy flour by itself and make all your own stuff. Yes. There's nothing you have to worry about. Okay. Because you're not adding in the higher concentration fructose sugars um, into the substances. Okay. If you're buying the milled processed flours that are already cooked and produced into whatever you're going to produce, mm-hmm. the breads, the cakes, etc. Yes. Within a lot of the Western produced materials, there is a high amount of fructose sugar within the sugars, which means that the percentage of fructose relative to glucose is higher. Yes. Fructose is what causes things to taste sweet. Yes. But fructose has a kind of a devil attached to it. Mm-hmm. And the devil is attached to it is that fructose, independent of any other metabolic signal, triggers the adipose cells, the fat cells, yes, to make lipids. Without neural input, with, without without any hormonal input. Okay, so and nothing so, so else. There's nothing else that nothing else that the fat cells need besides having fructose in circulation. That's pretty scary. And so, so we've seen this on we've seen this in multiple models, multiple animal models as well as in human models. Mm-hmm. We've seen this uh, in terms of epidemiological evidence. Okay. Statistical correlations is the, yes. is the better way of putting epidemiological evidence. If we look at the correlate, if we look at the correlative linkages, there is both a very high correlation score, what we call R score, as well as a relatively high linkage score, what we call an R squared score, between increases of fructose in the diet and obesity, what everybody labels obesity. Across the globe. And okay. so this is where everybody talks about, oh, the Western diet came into this new country and obesity spiked. Yeah. It's not the Western foods. It's mm-hmm. not, oh, don't eat flour from, a, from the United States. Mm-hmm. It's what additive fructose does to the body in terms of metabolism and nutritional uh disruption that takes place from that added fructose. Now, if you look at, and this is where I've had some, some interesting discussions with some people. Mm-hmm. If you look at the difference between table sugar, which is glucose and fructose put together, mm-hmm. and high fructose corn syrup. If you look at, at corn sugar, glucose and fructose, versus high fructose corn sugar, what we call high fructose corn syrup, mm-hmm. the difference is about 2%. So it goes from about a 50-50 ratio of glucose yeah. to fructose to about a 48-52 glucose to fructose ratio in the high fructose. That 2%, even though it doesn't sound like a lot, yeah. is enough to swing metabolism because of the fact that when my body is getting the additional fructose and the additional glucose, I'm going to have changes in how my cells are going to be utilizing those, those nutrients. Right. If I am metabolically active, it doesn't matter. 
Oh. If I am not metabolically active, then it does matter. And everybody's, when everybody hears metabolically active, everybody talks about, oh, exercise, exercise, exercise. It's not about exercise. It's about being metabolically active. Having conversations. Just reading moving. books. Having yeah. conversations, reading books, learning makes you metabolically active. Basically being not being in a coma. Not, not, being, not, not, not being sedentary. Uh, yes. <clears throat> you've, heard, you've heard this line before. Most of my physiology students have heard this line multiple times. A lot of my health science students have heard this, learned, heard this line multiple times. The difference between being active and being not active is the difference between sitting on the couch, eating bonbons, watching television, mm-hmm. versus sitting on the couch, yelling at the television while the television is yelling at you. Pretty both much, times, that makes sense. Both, both times I sit on the couch. I'm not yes. physically active. No. But when I am metabolically active, mm-hmm. you know, I have the television while the television yells at me, versus not being metabolically active, sitting on the couch, eating bonbons, watching the television. Makes sense. And so, when I, and this goes into the, the whole why people, and it leads into something that was raised in the, in the video, which we'll get to here in a, in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. And you kind of touched on it, the caloric balance idea. Yes, yes. And it leads into one of the rising eating disorders that's out there. And that's exercise bulimia. Yes. And that has to do with the fact that we do not understand what is a calorie. And the fact that out of all of the calories that I need in a day, by doing exercise, all I'm doing is adding at most an additional 5 to 20% right. for most individuals. If I am very, very active in exercise, I might change my needs for calories by 20 to 25% at most. Okay. And it goes into something that we talked about, I think it was last week, with the, with the, uh, the Benedict equation in terms yes. of energy need. Yes. If I looked at energy need for me to do just normal activity days of activities, everyday activities, right? I have to add thirty percent to the Benedict equation mm-hmm. for activities of daily living. If I am physically active to the recommendations made by most medical associations, mm-hmm. instead of adding thirty percent, I now have to add fifty percent. Oh, so my Benedict equation says without any activity is say 1100. Okay. For me to do an everyday activity, I'm now at about 1430. Wow. 30%. If yeah. I am following medical recommendations, I'm now at about 1560. That's the difference of 130 calories. Yeah. But the problem is, is that no one understands that because we don't, we don't approach the, the equations for eating based off of what we're actually needing to use in a day. We're based off of energy. We've, we've been based off of energy for too long. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is in publication right now that just got through review that in biology of, of, of sport, which hopefully will come out in the next couple of months, mm-hmm. where I showed that you actually have better weight loss using a nutrient balance versus using a caloric balance. Yes. And people found it easier to follow nutrient balance and 
easier to understand nutrient balance than to understand and follow caloric balance. Yes. Because, okay, what's 100 calories? Well, if I'm looking at it in terms of, of sugar, in terms of carbohydrates, that's 25 grams. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking at it in terms of protein, it's about 25 grams. If I'm looking at it in terms of fat, it's only about nine grams. Oh. That's 100 calories. Yeah. Actually, it's going to be about 10 grams for, for fats. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you start looking at it in that fashion, based off of calories, you end up overestimating what you have to expend for what is being consumed, as opposed to looking at it in terms of, okay, what is being physically active, what is being metabolically active, and what fuel sources are those tissues using to meet the demands for that moment mm-hmm. and then repair itself following that stress. Right. Well, thanks for getting through the second part of the discussion between Mikhail and myself. Uh, please stay tuned for the third part of this conversation, which should be coming out relatively soon. Please make sure you give us those five-star uh, reviews. Click on that subscribe button if you haven't already done so. Sharing out with uh, friends and family, getting them to subscribe as well. We'd very much appreciate it. Please make sure you're following on all of the publications that we're putting out there here on the podcast, as well as on YouTube, on Substack, as well as the short clips that we're posting on to Instagram and Threads.